Welcome to the Jane Bond Show, from execution to excellence. And I am your host, Jane Bond, the serial entrepreneur who will be sharing with you valuable life lessons and interviewing influencers from around the country who have broken through to success, along with giving you advice on navigating through the game. Today's topic is the greatness of Alexander. Our special guest comes to us with wisdom and a mindset for achieving greatness. He shares with us his trials and tribulations that he experienced growing up in Denver, being exposed to gang life and having a tyrant for a father who verbally and physically beat him on a daily basis. He also shares with us how he was able to disappear and morph himself into different characters through the horror, only to come to be the man, the amazing man he is today. Starting with landing the starring role as Simba in the monster Tony Award-winning Broadway hit, Lion King. He also worked with some of the biggest names in entertainment, such as Prince, Janet Jackson, and Jennifer Hudson, to name a few. However, he unfolds so much more in this interview. Without any further ado, our special guest, Alexander Garland. Hey, Alexander, how are you today? Hello, Jane. Doing very well, thank you. Yourself? Oh, I'm doing fine, you know, especially with the climate we're in. How are you making out out there in L.A. with um, COVID-19? You know, staying at home, staying safe, sanitizing and all that jazz, um, and just staying grounded in spirit. Awesome, awesome. Same here, you know. Um, I think uh, the best thing for me that has come out of this whole COVID-19 is I've been able to gather myself and become closer with family members and um, Mm. actually reach out and touch them a little more than I normally did because we get so absorbed in our own busy lives, which is really not as busy as we think they are. Yes. So I think the thing has come through out of this. Yes. Ditto on that front. Uh, Definitely have found that uh, all the things that it's been like, oh, I don't have enough time for this, I don't have enough time for that, I found the time for it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) During this quarantine. Um, So, uh, yeah, just just counting my blessings and um, being grateful for what I do have and... um, yeah, trudging forward. Oh, fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on from execution to excellence. And I, I feel like, you know, you are someone that my audience is going to love hearing their story. So with that being said, let's jump right into it. You know, Alexander, you have an interesting story. So why don't we start with you growing up in Long Island in Roosevelt? Ah, one of the best places. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a little biased. <laughs> so okay, <laughs> did I, I like get that right? That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, Roosevelt, Long Island, is where my heart was cultivated. Uh, I I left Roosevelt when I was around five years old, but 
um, my heart was fully grown there <laughs> in that sense. And uh, just around the love of my beloved grandmother, who's still with us, um, grandfather, who recently passed, and um, oh, I'm just sorry. that sorry East Coast that. family. Thank you for that. For that. Yeah, he's on the other side, but um, there's something auspic- auspicious about uh, people being on the other side for me that they, uh, they're kind of working uh, for us from the other side. Uh, and, yeah, just let that be what that is. I agree with you 100%, 100% on that one. Uh, you grew up with a, you know, pretty large family like I did. You had seven siblings, six siblings. Yeah, yes, I'm one of seven. Oh, fantastic. That must have been fun growing up with a large family. Oh, wow. I mean, (laughs) definitely busy. The fun um, and or just activity, you know, because sometimes siblings, you know, we're not the best to each other growing up. We're all changing. (laughs) No, we're not. (laughs) Going through, uh, you know, puberty or just angst. (laughs) So, um Yes, there was definitely always activity. Some of it was, you know, good for us. Some of it was poo-pooed. But, yeah, yeah. never a dull moment. Where do you fall in place in line with your siblings age-wise? I'm the second oldest of all of us, but I'm actually the oldest male. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'm the second child next to the baby. And everyone else oh, is older wow. <laughs> You and I have a few things in common, which is interesting. <laughs> That's funny. That's great. You know, growing up with a large family can be amazing or, you know, it could be a terror for some, you know, depending on, you know, who's the family bully. <laughs> Definitely. Right. Um, but, you know, my family, they were all kind of into music and singing and, and interest. I'm a little older than you, so it was interesting in the 70s for us. So I can only imagine in your family, you know, with seven kids running around and you being, wow, next to the oldest, that's amazing. I was like one of the last ones to arrive here. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Got it. So I know you guys moved from Long Island at a young age and you moved to Denver. What were some of the challenges and um, issues that you guys went through when you had moved, you know, so far away from your family, your your family, your immediate family, actually. Yeah, yeah. So um, when we moved, I was around five or six years old, and uh, there was three of us on the scene so far, <laughs> uh, as far as siblings go. And um, there was there was discord in the family. Um, basically, uh, my father. It wasn't a secret that he'd become very violent, not just towards uh, my mother, but to us kids and her family, her mother, father, and her siblings uh, wanted to do something about it. You know, not necessarily an intervention, but definitely um, put a hand in between and say, no, you can't do this. You know, we're done, you know, and he, yeah, yeah. So um, some uncomfortable and heated uh, discussions and um, arguments. And, you know, it's not talking about emotional abuse, 
or just emotional abuse or verbal abuse, you know, there, there's physical marks and such that are coming up on their their nieces and nephews, you know, us as the kids and their sister. So, you know, there was just a, there was something that needed to be done. And my father being the tyrant that he grew into, um, because I like to believe that people aren't born that way, you know, Um, not making an excuse for that behavior or that type of person, but um, people make a choice to to not feel pain or to not be bullied or whatever that that is anymore. And those choices, uh, they spiral out and hurt other people sometimes. So he chose to be a tyrant for whatever um, demons that he had in his closet um, to rise up against. And um, inside of that tyrant mentality, he wanted to control um, the quote-unquote discipline, using his words, of his family. And that meant the discipline of his kids and his wife. Um, And he moved us to Denver. So that's why you guys up and moved to Denver. Yeah, and the kids didn't really, we didn't know how permanent it was going to be. You know, we thought it was just a moment in time. As (laughs) sometimes as a kid, you do think it is, you know. You know, it's like, oh, we'll we'll come back and, you know, life is so big as a five-year-old that it feels like forever. But um, it actually did become forever. We never moved back. Um, We did visit every summer for a few years, but then at some point he cut that off as well. And it might not have all been him. It might have also been the fact that four other kids came on the scene and, you know, a black family with seven kids, the mother's working, you know, tirelessly, and the father's doing jobs every now and then, you know, um, that's basically a one-parent household with a lot of abuse um, going on. And uh, it's, it's challenging, to say the least, to take care of seven children <laughs> as one powerful black woman, you know. So um, God bless my mother for what she's endured and what she's come through um Absolutely. but i know it must have mustn't have been easy you know to raise good little children let alone you know um children that are black and dealing with things and dealing with trauma now and you know just all these different layers absolutely and how did that affect you guys you know going to school and and making that big you know move to to Denver in a whole different environment and then the abuse getting worse I would think yeah yeah you know I think he thought that oh well if I get them out of the way of of these other influences they'll behave or they'll act like I want them to um with a total disregard that we're our own people and my mother is her own person and we all have our own thoughts and all that jazz you know so it didn't turn out like he planned, and the the fire in the kitchen got hotter. Um, definitely rose the stakes um, and stress added to that as well. You know, having more children, having less money, um, not having the a community that you already know, like having to build a new community. Um, there was there was. 
definitely a rise in the abuse um, and the environment that we lived in physically uh, with the neighborhoods got worse and worse as well. Um, and so the other kids that we hung around, the, the neighborhoods, the activity in the neighborhoods was not the same, it was not the same quality that we were experiencing in Long Island. Um, and we, we fell way to our environment, you know, with um, gangs being around and drugs being around. And okay. I was going to ask you what was the difference. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't think that our family got heavily into drugs. What we did um, get influenced by was a lot of gang activity in the area. There was a lot of shootings in Denver. Um, there was a lot of fighting and uh, fight culture, uh, <laughs> which coming from Long Island, we were, we were a bit sheltered. Of course, now being older, I know that there, there was fighting and stuff going on, but uh, I didn't hear a lot of great school fighting versus the elementary school that I went to in Denver. People were being beat with chains. <laughs> um, they, uh, somebody got choked out on the, on the playing field um, to death and had to be resuscitated. Just like really traumatic things for anyone wow. to see, let alone a child. Yeah, of course, of course. And this is when you're in grade school or junior high, high school? That was school? grade school. That was elementary, yeah. Wow. So, was this because of, what, racism or? No, this was. Kids um, fighting each other? Yeah, this was, this was mostly impoverished and or, you know, um, lower class um, children uh, going okay. to a really actually amazing school. Um, we had amazing art programs and um, a staff that actually cared and everything. It's just that we we're dealing with trauma. All these families dealing with trauma being thrown into one school and not addressing that there's trauma going on at home, you know. Um, okay. The, the playground was the battlefield. Um, there were fights every week, you know. Um, so whether you were a sweet child or not, you either got with the program one way or another, you know, by hiding out or by starting to fight. And how did you come through that? Well, as an individual. Fight, yes. Having, having to fight at and having to fight in my own home with my father, um, where I'm a five-year-old, you know, or, you know, as I grow up, six, seven, whatever have you. Um, and he's a six-foot-five black man who has trained hands, you know, hands that are uh, legal weapons with uh, knowing karate systems or what have you. And um, I'm no match, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and as a five-year-old, he looks like a giant in the first place. So... Of course, of course. Uh, what, you don't go into that fighting. What I did is I went into it hiding. Um, I realized that I can't be who I want to be. I can't be who I really am around him. So I'm going to act like other people. And that's how I got into entertainment. I acted my life out. I acted like other characters. I put on other voices um, and would portray or do anything uh, to not 
be in my own skin. I understand. Got it. So where, so from elementary school, let's fast forward to high school. Now you're Got in it. high school and you're a young man, and I'm sure you're growing and getting taller and stronger. How did that work out at home? Well, by high school, I had, I think we have to do a quick uh, backup just because right after elementary, I went into um, The Lion King, and it was really my saving grade. The, um, I went in when I was in sixth grade, and I, uh, it was a national you know, call for the audition. And I think I knew what Broadway was, but I didn't realize that it was Broadway, Broadway. Um, okay. I got excited when I finally got the job because I was able to go back to New York and see my family, and I was like, oh, yay. And people thought I was excited about you know, being in a Broadway show. I'm like, yeah. Not the Broadway show. I wasn't with my family again, you know. So, um, and then I realized so that I was doing sixth grade, let, let's, let's, in sixth grade, what are you, 12? Yeah. Is it? About 12 it years 12. old. Okay. And I was a different 12-year-old, though, because I looked eight. <laughs> I was that short. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I'm a 12, I'm a 12-year-old, 8-year-old. <laughs> and... Um, I went into Lion King. I, went, I was touring for a year and a half with them. Uh, this was their first national tour. I was the first young Simba on that tour. Um, it was freshly after 9-11. Um, so hearts were open and raw from the devastation that that, that that was for not just New York, but for the nation, you know, for the world. And um, our job on tour was not to, you know, perform. They told us very early on that our job on tour was to get inside the hearts of the American people, you know, like revive them from what happened with 9-11. And that's what we took on. And we did that for a year and a half. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. One of the best years and a half of my life. So how how did you... And your team, the touring, the, you know, the whole group of you touring, how did you revive America, so to speak, and, you know, take on that mission to heal people as opposed to perform? Mm, I mean, some mm. people can't distinguish the two, so I want you to distinguish right. that for others. Got it. Okay. So, um, well, number one, I'll say, you know, obviously everybody does things differently. You know, like everybody has their own personal way that they do it. But I really do think that as a group, what we did is we, we didn't shy away from the vulnerability. We didn't shy away from the heart of it all. Um, in the opening scene, you know, of The Lion King, you hear the, you know, and that is a, it's a battle. Well, all right, let's hear it. Well, let's hear that again. Uh, and that's not my role that's no Rafiki singing but it's a absolutely yeah it's just the way that Rafiki just grounds in and sings that out it was a wake up 
We are here. We see you. We love you. And for at least this hour and a half, two hours, we've got you. We are going to take you on this journey. We are going to look, grab you by the lapel and not let go. You know, and we're going, to, we're going to love on you. We're going to, yes, there's a message, amazing message in Lion King of like the circle of life and things go on, you know, um, and it's an amazing coming of age story. But I think what we did was we took our pain that we were feeling with 9-11 and we put that directly behind as if it was a filter and um, really put our hearts out there. And that's what had the the. I'm sure that was very, yeah, that had to be very powerful and impactful yeah. on the people that, you know, were, were seeing the show for the first time and mm-hmm. seeing, you know, this whole circle of love and life come to fruition. That's amazing. I mean, just by you singing that little part, I could feel it, you know, go through me. And that's why I was like, <laughs> okay, let's hear that again. Because you, it's, it's so recognizable and, you know, it's such an original um, uh, Broadway play that as soon as you hear it, you know exactly what it is. You know, exactly. not everything can move you and grab you, but I know that was one of the longest shows, you know, and still playing on Broadway. Um, yeah. And being yeah. a part of the original cast and being the main star, you know, because that's what it was all about is amazing. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely feel that energy, you know, come alive for people and have them just be, you know, taken away for that hour and a half. That's amazing that you guys were able to take that on because you did mention that in our earlier conversation that your mission on Broadway at that time was to revive America. So let me ask you this. That's a great segue into my next question. While you were on stage at this young age, bringing others together, feeling, you know, all this pain that you had, in the background, in your own life, what was that like for you? Whew. <laughs> that's, the, that's the really extraordinary thing because we didn't ignore it, you know, that that was our life, but we were able to not experience that pain, the physical pain of being abused, uh, you know, daily um, for a year and a half. We were on tour, <laughs> and we we look back at pictures, and I'm making some what we'll call really expressive faces, faces that I'm like, why would I ever make that face? And when I look at it, I'm like, oh, because I actually was able to make that face. Like I was like these weird, hilarious little like gremlin faces. <laughs> But it's just this little boy who's experiencing joy freely. And before that, I didn't know what that was. The last time I was able to do that freely was as a five-year-old when I was back in Long Island. And so being on tour really saved my life. Right. It did. What was that like for you recognizing that? You know, um, <laughs> I didn't want it to end. You know, I was, <laughs> I actually, <laughs> I actually told them um, when you know I got 
my letter of, you're too tall. <laughs> you can't be young Simba anymore, so your contract's going to be ending. Um, okay. Walked, and how long was that? Did that for a year and a half. And um, okay. after that, I bawled. I was bawling. And, you know, they had a going away party, bawling. And I remember telling them, I believe it was like a company manager or something like, you know, what I think we could do is just I can be a stagehand until I turn 18, and then when I'm 18, I can just be Big Simba, and then, you know, it can work out. (laughs) (laughs) Anything not to go back. Exactly. And I, I think that, you know, they were like, you're hilarious and cute, and we would keep you if we could. But that's not how the world works. You can't be a child stagehand. <laughs> you know, it's like there has to be some role that I can play. Um, and um, I actually had to face the music that um, go, go back to the life of what I had. And when I looked at that, I said no. I called up my mom and I said, hey, so... Um, I'm supposed to come back. You know, my contract ended, and I'm 13 now, you know, um, 13 and right. a half. And right. she's like, oh, that's great, da 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 You know, so excited to have you back. She's back home with my six brothers and sisters and my father, and I told her I'm not coming back. I'm not coming so back wait a second. unless he's gone. At 13 and a half, you make a phone call to say to your mother, because you're still a minor, I'm yeah. not coming back home. I'm not coming back home unless he's gone. Okay. And she was like, what? I was like, well, I haven't been beat for a year and a half. Like, I don't want to experience that anymore. I don't think I'll make it through it. You have to have him go or I'm not coming back home. I will, you know, my aunt had... Uh, generously gave up her job and was my guardian, professional guardian on tour, and she was going to drive back to New York. And I said, I'll drive back to New York with my aunt, you know, go live with my grandmother. You know, I don't know how I really would work it out, but I was like, I'd, I'd find a way. You know, I must have money now because I've been on Lion King for a year and a half. I didn't really know how much money I had, but I said I, I knew in my spirit I had enough resources to – work it out, and not live in that situation anymore. Um, at least leverage it, it sounds like. And uh, she, she fought with me for a little bit, and then she was like, I, she realized I wouldn't come back unless he was gone. And she told him he had to go. Amazing. It must have taken a lot of strength. You know, I, I, you know here it is. You have a child star who's on tour in one of the biggest Broadway shows there is, and he's afraid to go back home. How does that happen? And if he goes Mm. back home, he's going to get beat by a father who is not even recognizing who who he has actually raised as a child through the abuse. Mm. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And your mom finds the strength to finally make him leave. Yeah. So you go back home, and what happens? So go back home, and um, it's 
weird <laughs> because uh, number one, he hadn't vacated before I got back home. It was like two or three days before he left. Um, so she was like, he's on his way out. I already told him, you know, but please come back. I need you. I need you to come back, please. And I trusted her, and he left a few days later. I didn't get beat in those few days. Um, and so I was like, yes, I got him out of the house. Well, one person's victory is another person's, we won't call it hell, but not the other person's victory. So we'll say that some of my brothers and sisters were upset, the younger ones, who hadn't been um, beat on as much. Um, he, he started to lose, apparently, his fervor or his drive to discipline us in that way. And they were like, you stole our, <laughs> like, why is our father not here? Well, we just said he can't live there. You know, he chose to move back to New York and not be in our lives. Um, and they, they still needed guidance from a male. And so what I didn't know is that I just became the candidate for the man of the house, which was a job bigger than I ever could have imagined at 13 and a half. Wow. Yeah. And how did you take that on? <laughs> With difficulty. <laughs> um, took it on the best way that I could, you know. Um, I realized that I wasn't their dad. I wasn't, you know. And yet there was some – I'm also a child, <laughs> so I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know. Um, exactly. But something needed to happen. You know, my mother's working all day, all night, and she is an amazing cook. She had her own catering business at one point, and I was like, you know, by her side doing that. But I was like, okay, well, when she's not here, I'll cook, you know. I'll clean. I'll help them do their homework. I'll, you know, get them into baths and showers and this, this, and that, and then I'll get my homework done. And after doing that, I had about three or four hours to sleep. And then I'd wake up to wake them up and get it all done again because she was working night shifts. And just that was, that was my life. Like, I could do this. I could do this. Three or four hours of sleep, fine. It's good. It's good. And then it took a toll, you know. You can only go without sleep for so long or enough sleep until it really starts to mess up your framework. And oh, I started to get behind in school, you know, um, and they're telling me, you know, I have to do this, I have to do that. People are idolizing me or kids are idolizing me because, you know, they're like, oh, my God, you're a Broadway star, you're a Broadway star. Uh, I don't feel like a Broadway star. I'm taking care of a household, you know, living in the project, you know, um, dealing with shootings all on my block and, you know, having to, you know, deal with gang members and all this stuff. It's just like, where's the child star in this? Where's the, where's the Broadway? Where's the celebrity status? There isn't one. <laughs> and, you know, they're telling me that I have to really focus on my studies. I was like, well, I'm trying to stay alive. I really don't feel like I'm going to make it to 18 at this point. So I'm going to do the best I can, but to hell with your studies. 
So this experience, the whole experience, which is a wonderful experience, which, you know, has taken you back to Denver, has, you know, gotten rid of the abusive father, um, has totally reshaped your life and put you in a whole nother experience, becoming the man of the house at the right age of 14 now. Yeah. Taking care of, you know, three, four other siblings and moving forward with your own life. I have to take my hat off to you. That's a hell of a lot to handle at that age. And how you did it and come to where you are now is amazing. Um, You're one strong young man. So let's talk about, absolutely, let's talk about where you went from there, okay? After school, moving forward, um, what happened after that? Well, hmm. knowing you love Broadway, knowing you love the entertainment industry, right? trying to stick with it, how did you find yourself back there? Out of high school, uh, turning 18, I moved to L.A. I got accepted to a school, uh, and I went to L.A. for school. Did not like the school. It was not my cup of tea. Um, and I did not like LA at first. <laughs> uh, I knew I had to get out of Denver. So I was planning on, you know what, let me try LA because people in New York were saying, you know, LA is not really that great. LA is not really that great. It's fine. And I felt like it was a, well, you know what, I'm going to eat this cake, but I'm going to tell you that this cake isn't good so you don't eat the cake. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try L.A. real quick, and then I'm going to go back to New York, and I'm going to live my New York life, and it's going to be great. (laughs) Well, I think we all think that sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, 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 about that. (laughs) So, you know, I think we find New York a real human experience, whereas though in L.A., everything is always a little cloudy there. It's like you have to kind of wait till the sun peeks through to see what's really going on. Um, yeah. Whereas the New York is so raw and in your face, you know exactly what you're dealing with. Exactly. You know exactly what you're getting, whether it's, you know, messed up or, you know, sunshine and roses, you know exactly what you're getting as soon as you step in the door. Or you can, like, exactly. smell it from a mile away. Or you know out what the I mean? door. No. <laughs> exactly. All of it. And so I, I struggled with the fickleness um, of LA and the 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 level of mystery that it was, and that I wasn't getting what I thought I paid for up front, you know. Um, and I was like, I'm not doing this. I don't like this school. I don't like LA. I'm going back. So I went back to Denver to recollect my self, and then I actually booked on a tour with Cirque du Soleil, um, Kuza. They, they were working in Denver, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to work with them as an usher. I ended up being an usher supervisor and working with their VIP clients, and they asked us if I wanted to tour with them to the next city. next city was going to be Santa Monica in L.A. I said, okay. Um, and when we look at where I lived, I lived in Hollywood, in the middle of Hollywood, 
for school, and I didn't like it. And there was just this, this fakeness, this fickleness. When I lived in Venice, I could feel a spiritual pulse. I could feel a just more real. And I was like, oh, I think I could do this. And things were just popping off and synchronicities were happening. Um, my spirituality really just started to get rooted. And instead of staying on tour with Service uh, Soleil, we said, you know what? We're going to try our hand at staying in L.A. And that was one of our actually big gigs that made it happen. Got the, got the opportunity to dance for Janet Jackson for the release of her number one album release. Okay. That was that was that was it. I mean, the Jackson that was family. The okay, the Jackson that was the turning point for you. Exactly. The Jackson family was Michael Jackson was I think I lost you there. Oh no. There you are. Oh, great. <laughs> so, um the Jackson family, they're yeah, I idolize them. <laughs> Um, and more specifically, Michael was my top. Like right under my grandmother, there was Michael Jackson. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, when I got the opportunity to dance for Janet, I jumped out of my skin. I did. And I didn't have a car at the time, and I rode my bike all the way from Venice to the Grove and then from the Grove to Studio City. And wow, I did not care because I was like, it's Janet Jackson. Y'all better move. And, determination by its best, at its best. Yeah, yeah. And it was an opportunity to do a flash mob with Flash Mob America, which at the time, they were very brand new. And now they're the leading flash mob company in the world. Um, but I started to dance with them with this opportunity with Janet. And they heard about my story about riding my bike from, you know, Venice through the, to the Grove, and then to uh, Studio City. And they were like, you, we like your tenacity. Maybe you should stay on with us, you know. So I started to get more dancing gigs with them. I then started producing with them. And that started my dancing and producing career in L.A. Fantastic. And you have um, danced and produced with quite a few superstars, like Jennifer Hudson and Rosario Dawson and, you know, to name a few. And not only, you know, the man himself, Prince. You know, God bless yes. soul. So tell us yes. a little bit about what that was like for you, working with, you know, these mega stars. Well, some of them, it started, like, really subtle. You know, like, you meet them, and then it's like, okay, you know, your group of people just happens to be with their group of people, and, you know, then you end up at, you know, a restaurant together or at their house together, and, you actually realize you connect with these people. And, you know, life goes on, and then, you know, they lose somebody or you lose somebody, and they just, we show up for each other in a really beautiful way, and they become family. So a lot of these people, like, just started to become family for me. Um, and it was just as they had amazing things that were going on, like Rosario Dawson with Studio 189, it was like, okay, great. That's her, you know, ethical clothing line based out of Ghana and um, basically doing high fashion couture with um, Ghanaian textiles. 
Mm-hmm. Like, okay, great. Well, how can I assist you in what you're up to? You know, so I started to, you know, help out with Studio 189. And with uh, Prince, actually, this is a Lion King Lupin that <laughs> a lot of people that I meet in Lion King, it becomes a, oh, okay, great. We're just like, it's like meeting a cousin at a, at a family reunion. <laughs> so right. the, the twins, Prince, the Prince twins, who are two Australian women named Maya and Nandy McLean, they were in the Lion King in Australia. And when I met them, I was like, oh, my God, but you're like princess twins. Like you're known as like the two women that flank him everywhere. Like they were on the Super Bowl and all this jazz. I was like, I can't. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait, you're Lion King family? Okay, my anxiety's gone. Like you're good. And when, as they were transitioning from being performers, dancers and singers for Prince, into directing and producing, they needed help on some of the films that they were doing and uh, music videos. One of the music videos um, was uh, Prince's music video, Breakfast Can Wait. And okay. they came on and were assisting them with, a, with producing and became a model. And Prince just... He's, he's every bit of mystery that everybody ever thinks he is. <laughs> he's every bit of amazing that everybody ever thought he was. Thought he, was. he was a, a wonder to this world, you know, um, and just so much reverence on his name and on his career and just who he, who he is as, a, as an entertainment mogul. Um, just, yeah, there's, there's nothing more to say about that man. He's amazing. Um, and just so sad um, that he's not with us still. Yeah. He, he was one of the greats that we lost, definitely, you know, along with quite a few others, like a Whitney, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Michael. I mean, we can go down the list these days. You know, that's right. amazing that you had the opportunity to work with so many superstars, you know, and that kind of brings me back to what you are doing now. And when you think about your, you know, when I think about you, you know, from start the conversation, you know, to being abused to, you know, having a wonderful life in Long Island with your mom's immediate family to being shuffled off to Denver away from the love and everything, and you kind of develop this family outside of everything. Um, mm. Even though you were ha- you had these horrible, horrible experiences, you know, with your your immediate family, your siblings, you know, dealing with everything, and then it sounds like being somewhat blamed for, you know, the man of the house, your father, being dismissed, so you could come back, and only to come back to take care of everyone else. But you know, moving forward and and looking at where you are at this point of our conversation, working with a Janet Jackson, a Jennifer Hudson, Rosario Dawson, and Prince, to name a few, is an amazing feat to have under your belt at this point. And you talk, you know, you, you said something to me in our conversation um, we had the other day. You said that you right now have been a fluid male for the past two years. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so... One of the reasons why uh, our father was so specifically uh, violent towards me was because of 
some markers he started to see inside of me liking men. I had to hide that away. That was one of the things I hid away um, inside of my career and or um, inside of acting and performing. Uh, and as I started to become comfortable with myself over the years, I started to, you know, go out there as a or be the yeah, people started to see me as a gay man and I used to I started to go out as that. And I realized that was just another box that I was actually putting on myself. That that's not who I am and that I actually feel and sit down more as a fluid being. Just I'm fluid inside of my relationships with men and or women and that uh, even more so there's a there's a pronoun that um, inside of this you know changing system that we have of communication and language that really fit more than the traditional he him or his and that pronoun for us is we us and our and it's kind of okay. pronged the two different um, levels of that is that number one our ancestors that I wouldn't be where I am without the challenges and the successes that my ancestors went through. And that's really for everybody, right? But just speaking on my own behalf, um, I wanted to bring a, a present-day speech to honoring them. And that is how we do that through the we, us, our. That's how we choose to do it. Um, the second prong is really just the reminder that we are one. You know, with all this divisiveness and or dividedness that we have in the world right now, it's easy to say, like, you're black or I'm black, you're white, um, this is mine, that's yours, you know, like, have all these divisions. And, yes, um, we have differences. And differences are what are a part of what makes us who we are, right? But we are all still a part of the human race, you know, and um, there's more that connects us than that divides us, and we stand by that. And if we can remind ourselves that, then maybe we can um, remind others. And that's why we've taken on this we, us, our as a pronoun and just owned ourselves inside of the fluidity that we are. We don't want to put ourselves in boxes anymore or have other people put us in boxes, especially um, given the life that we've already led. So you think um, that the abuse, a lot of the abuse that was geared towards you is because he started recognizing you um, being a gay male as opposed to being what he maybe think was normal. Yeah. Interesting. That's very interesting because a lot of men, I guess, you know, I hear this story often when I talk to, you know, young gay men or young uh, gay women or transgender, transgender, yet it be whatever, you know, um, the abuse comes from the parent and it's the parent that doesn't understand so they don't know what else to do but to abuse something they think is pretty much their fault. Yeah, they I have no idea where that comes from because, uh, you know, like you said, we're all the same people you know, and, and I always say stay out of people's bedrooms, first of all. I think that's mm. that's the number one 
part for me, that part. Mm. You know, nobody should be in anybody's bedroom because that's none of anybody's business. And um, that. we're all, yeah, we're all the same, you know, irrespective of who we are attracted to. It's, it's you know, the heart doesn't know or see anything. The heart just feels. So whether yes. it's feeling for a male or female or both, it's nobody's business. And, and I never understood that, you know, I'm, I come from a family and I have uh, two young gay nephews who I absolutely adore. And I'll never forget, we had a conversation at one point where my one nephew, I don't think I've ever shared this, you know, he wanted to commit suicide because of, you know, the problems he was having at home with his father. And, you know, I sat them both down and I said to them, listen, being gay is a very short conversation with anyone. You know, there's so much more to you than what you are sexually. It's none of anybody's business, first of all. And you should not feel that pain because someone doesn't understand you. Because it really has nothing to do with you. And I adore my nephews. I love them to death, and they're like gentlemen. And everybody that meets them or even anybody that introduced them to just love them. I mean, just gentlemen. And now, you know, they're not babies anymore. They're 30, 29 and 30, grown men, yeah. educated, good-looking, talented. You know, so I, I definitely can relate to that because, I, you know, I believe everybody has you know, someone in their family that has gone through some sort of abuse, whether it was for that reason or another. And no one should have to go through that, especially as far as their sexuality is concerned, because that's none of anybody's business. And if you're in somebody's bedroom, then you have issues of your own. Mm-hmm. So I take my hat off to you for understanding who you were at a very young age and becoming this fluid male and then expressing yourself the way you are um, at this point in your life. Thank you. So let's talk about Be Done Movement. Yes. I know that's something you're very proud of and you're moving forward with. Tell our audience about that. Well, uh, Be Done Movement is a, another Lion King connection. Um, it's a black dance company, dance and theater company, based out of Los Angeles, that the creator, founder, uh, and artistic director, Bridget Dunn-Corpella, uh, is championing and created. She uh, is somebody that I had the privilege of meeting in Lion King as well on that tour. So she's a part well, of that. Well, this Lion King family. is amazing. I'm going to tell you, I wish I would have been a part of that tour. <laughs> We've gone from 12 years old to, you know, where you are now, and Lion King just is the keep. It just keeps giving. <laughs> look, I love it. Look, when I tell you it saved my life, it saved my life in so many different ways. It's just like Amazing. such a blessing. Just so grateful. So grateful. But, yeah, so met her then, and then she, uh, we actually both were accepted to CalArts. California Institute of the Arts um, in Valencia at the same time. She was going into her master's program, and I was going into um, my BFA acting. 
and <clears throat> I ended up not going because that school is a pretty penny, and I didn't have that pretty penny at that time, and that is, okay. um, yeah, <laughs> it's about $50,000 a year to go to, and didn't have that. <laughs> so um, the 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 wasn't able to go, but got reconnected with her when she was in her master's program up there, and <clears throat> her thesis is, or was, uh, Echo. And Echo is a dance piece that is that shows and or experiences the transatlantic slave trade, the Middle, middle Passage, uh, and what that uh, an aspect of what that has done to us as black people um, as lived in trauma and how to get that out, um, how that lived in trauma actually finds its way out through, through uh, being led by spiritual ancestors. So that's been, from that thesis that she created at CalArts, basically uh, she created a whole company. And uh, since then, I've been a champion of her and her work and uh, been like, well, what, what can I do? What can I do? And started in small ways. And now, uh, what is this, five, maybe six years later, um, I'm the, let's see, <laughs> I have to remember words at this point, uh, directing consult, consulting director of um, marketing and operations for Be Done Movement. And we are working on this really exciting uh, project. Uh, we just got the residency with Culture Hub, which is a uh, it's a global company that has um, a few different um, offices in different parts of the globe, basically to have cultures start to share their experiences with each other. They offer residencies every year. One of them. Um, for each different uh, section of the globe that they're on is for performance, and we were granted, after putting in the application, the performance residency this year. So um, very excited fantastic. for – say that again? I said fantastic. Yeah, just super excited. Um, what we're working on is a piece called Echo Immersive Experience, so we've done, we have a big repertoire of, or not big necessarily, but um, we have a, a good repertoire of dance pieces, and we really wanted to take Echo now to another level. <clears throat> and that is really looking at what that looks, how can we bring this to more people? And so in this Echo immersive experience, we are looking at uh, the virtual trans, um, the virtual transformation of Echo and how to uh, expand it. So is it on stage or is it virtually? Oh, Bring well, it, it will be both. <laughs> it will be both. Um, okay. You can see more on our website, but basically, um, which is bedonemovement.com. Um, you'll also be able to see more on the Culture Hub website, Culture Hub LA, where we page, but basically we're going to be working with a lot of um, new technologies inside of virtual technology, um, virtual, um, yeah, VR and augmented reality.
to have on stage and uh, like in person and virtual uh, not apparitions <laughs> necessarily, but uh, experiences to be able to create a full uh, a, a, a full piece that you can breathe in um, almost literally the middle passage as a as a piece of history and um, come through it uh, to be able to start to get people in the in the lived in conversation of trauma that that is held in in the African diaspora okay so eventually are you saying I'm, I just want to make it clear the Be Done movement is a piece that you will be bringing to the stage along with virtual um, movement and human movement at the same time? Yes. Okay. That sounds interesting. I mean, I've seen a couple things done like that. I want to say it was, um, was it Tupac they did that with? And um, Oh, yeah. Okay, it was one other, I, I can't remember who else it was, but I don't think the second one went over well. But I know Tupac, people were really um, excited about it, and it did well. I can't yeah, remember so that's the definitely aspects, because I think in Tupac they used holograms. Yeah. Yeah, so that's definitely an aspect that we're going to be using. And in this next year of the residency, we're really exploring how it's actually going to come out. Um, but have you seen the VR headsets? Yes. Yeah, so we're looking at, you know, we're starting to play with how can we really create a virtual world, almost like a game inside of the VR headsets that people can, you know, engage with with the headsets on and uh, really almost create a... Uh, an avatar feel when it when those come off, you know, like when when I take off this VR headset, how much of that world can I actually see here in the space now again? So um, it's a really fun uh, exploration. It definitely takes a lot of tedious work and um, and um, and just focus, you know. But I'm very excited for this new piece. Interesting. I would love to see something like that. I look, took a peek at the website, and that looked pretty interesting. That's what made me think, will it be something like a hologram, you know, using some type of virtual movement on stage along with human movement at the same time, and they're engaging with each other. That's kind of what I got out of the website when I glanced at it really quickly. Um, so I'm glad you brought that to our attention. And I know there's another... Um, uh, uh, there's another um, piece that you are creating now, which is the top publishing company. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, I um, speak at that too, and I saw something <laughs> that was the Noble Court magazine. I thought, oh, yeah. how noble. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, basically the top publishing company is a company, a publishing company that I opened with my brother, um, he is a stage four cancer survivor. He got diagnosed with stage four lymphoma cancer when he was 17. 
and they told us that he, we shouldn't do chemo because it's not going to work, and he's too far gone. And my mother uh, decided to do chemo anyway, and he's with us today. Um, and so he's writing about his journey and, you know, being able to be here today. And with that autobiography, he wanted to – I've been really uh, mentoring him in how to bring that out into the world. Okay. On the other side, I have ch- a series of children's chakra books that I've been writing. And we looked at, wait, if you're going to be doing this book over here and I'm going to be doing this book over there, then why – are we looking at self-publishing? What if we just opened our own publishing company? I said, I don't know anything about a publishing company. I don't know how to do that. But you know what? Let me just, you know, rule it out and just see what it is. Well, what I found is that all of my training and or experience with producing has led me up to this, (laughs) creating and opening the publishing company for our family. And, um, also branching out from there to be able to be available to the public. So uh, we have a publishing company. We thought, you know, if we're going to have a company, why not, you know, create what we want in the name of it and be the top? <laughs> we are, so we, it was available um, auspiciously and in an amazing way. So we claimed the top publishing company um, and we're out here. <laughs> uh, one of the publications that we now have that's monthly is the Noble Court magazine. It came about because I had to do a newsletter for the publishing company and a newsletter for my production company and a newsletter for my brother's website that I built as well with all the other websites that I built. And I was like, this is not a newsletter. What if I could just have them go to one place? I was like, oh, well, okay. Sat down in a meditation with spirit. Said, yeah, have them all go to the publishing company. It's a publication. Like, oh, wow. Okay, so if I'm making a publication, I don't want it to be called the newsletter. What's the name? It's like, well, it's a magazine. A magazine? Oh, gosh, okay. <laughs> so what is the name of this magazine? It's like, well, if we're the top publishing company, let's, and we're a black-owned business, you know, um, black-operated, what does it look like or what has it looked like in history to be the top in the black diaspora? or in the African diaspora more so, right? Um, so we look at Egypt, and we look at just all the, all the references to black excellence throughout history. And we thought, you know what? We have one right here inside of common culture, or not common culture, um, present-day culture, which pulls on the history as well, which is, um, Wakanda and Black Panther, right? Like that speaks to this royalty of the Absolutely. African family. And so you know what? I said, we're going to claim this royalty. In the royal court or in the noble court, they're going to have a magazine. So it's the noble court magazine and that it doesn't just uplift the people that are inside of the magazine, but whoever comes to the noble court is by virtue of being in the noble court noble. So really, we want other people to experience themselves in a new way inside of patting themselves on the back, like you know, owning, owning the royalty that they are. And other than just being a newsletter for our companies, it's become a source for an elevated perspective 
on the black community. And this inspiration for the top publishing company came from your grandfather, you said. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, so um, our grandfather was many things. He was a semi-pro golfer, um, an architect, and he was the he worked for Newsday um, as the, a chief editor, and uh, he recently passed uh, July of 2020. Uh, it wasn't of uh, COVID-19, but um, he had had a few strokes and uh, a heart bypass surgery um, in the last 10 years. And so all of that within 10 years obviously takes a toll on somebody. We got the idea to open the publishing company uh, before he passed, and the week that we were opening it, he actually um, he left us. And just, you know, as you're dealing with grief and, you know, you want to remember people and find a, a, a way to remember people that really starts to capture who they were for you and who they were for the family and who they were in the world, we thought that, wow, this, this opportunity before us couldn't have been more, uh, it couldn't have been more right. And so the brand and or logo of the publishing company is actually a bust of our grandfather and is a direct tribute to him and his presence in our life. He sounded like he was an amazing man he in was, a culmination of career. Really yeah. With a wonderful culmination of careers. I'm, you know, Alexander, you sound like an amazing young man also with what you've been through, what you have gone through. Uh, I mean, what you're going through now and, and where you're on your way to, I, I think it's amazing. Um, I wish you all the luck. I, I think you've had, had an abundance of um, wonderful, you know, uh, experiences in your life, you know, along with the bad experiences. You know, you have turned out to be just a great young man doing what he needs to do and being himself and coming to fruition with who he is and being, you know, um, a father to young children, actually a big brother and a father to young children and surviving all the pain that you have, you know, been through to get to this point. And I am so proud to have, you know, interviewed you because these are the stories and without stories like this, you know, a lot of people think it's easy to get to success. And that's why the show is called From Execution to Excellence. And you have executed everything, you know, from start to finish to get to this point in your life. And I wish you all the luck and all the success, you know, that's ahead of you. Um, I want to ask you something. If you had one thing to have people, one question have people ask themselves that are trying to break through to success, what would that question be on a daily basis? 
Ooh. You got some good questions. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, okay. It would just be mm. one question that you would have people ask themselves on a daily basis that want to break through to success because we all have experiences, whether they're bad or good, we have to stay strong and we have to execute everything inside of us to break through to success. And the reason yeah. this show the reason this show is here is because we want people to know that you have to steadfast, you have to stay the course, and you have to yeah. execute everything you have inside of you. I think that question, that question is uh, what do I want to contribute to the future? Like just every day. What do I want to contribute to the future? Um, and I think that boils down to not just, you know, our everyday actions um, or the business opportunities we go for. It's the, the way that we treat ourselves, the way that we treat other people, you know, um, we can't change what's happened to us, you know. There's some people have been through horrible atrocities and traumas. And so we can't rewrite that history. But what we can do is heal it in ourselves. You know, we can't even heal it for other people, but we can heal it in ourselves so that it starts to, so it doesn't ripple and project onto other people. So how do, what do we want to contribute to the future? not just for our own life, but to the future as a whole. I started to realize that, you know what? This world is not what I want it to be right now. <laughs> and I don't think it's what most of us want it to be right now. Um, but at the beginning of this COVID experience, um, and maybe a little bit before then, I, was, I just started to realize I'm not a kid anymore. I can influence the world. I can influence the future, and I can either, you know, sit or get off the pot. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I boiled it down to. Do you find yourself as an adult living a life of, or wanting, let me rephrase that, do you find yourself wanting to live a life, or partial life of servitude? Mm. Yeah, in the sense that um, I want to be of service to the future. I want to be of service to the future generations. You know, um, when, when kids look at me, either my kids or my grandkids or, you know, um, my nieces or nephews, um, people that look up to me, when they look back as they're little, you know, ask the funniest little questions, <laughs> these little people. Like, well, what did you do during the pandemic? What did you do during the protest? What did you do to, you know, make this world the way it is? Or what did you do when you saw this world going bad? It's like, I want to have a good answer for them, that whether it was successful or not, I actually took a try at it. You know, I actually, you know, tried and tried and tried again and put my heart out in the world and opened up, you know, my, my vulnerability 
again and again and again to really make this world better for the future to come. You know, I'm still here, so yeah, it's making it better for me as well. But it goes beyond me. Understood. That's amazing because this is so true. I think um, living a life, you know, whether it's a full life, partial life, or somewhat life of servitude and giving back is so important today in our lives mm-hmm. as people, as a whole. It doesn't mm. matter, you know, we're blue, green, black, red, white, doesn't matter, yellow, Thank doesn't you. matter. We have to give back. We have to, at some point in our life, identify that we are here to be servants. Mm. Pass on, you know, mm. to, to carry this world into the next better place, somehow, some way. And I think it takes time. It takes experience. It takes a culmination of careers. It takes, you know, understanding who you are as a person and, you know, coming to light with yourself. Um, to understand that, you know, this is so much bigger than us. And, you know, and, Jane, I think the funny part is is that you're going to pass something down either way. So how about you choose Absolutely. It? You know, like how about we choose what we're going to pass down? You're going to pass down hate or you're going to pass down love? You're going to pass down whatever it is. You know what I mean? But either way, you're passing something. So let's pass it consciously rather than unconsciously. So true. So true. We must be very cognizant of what's happening in our world right now, you know, at this moment in time, and know that we have to contribute to make it a better place for all of us. Mm-hmm. I agree 150%. Mr. Alexander Garland, it has been amazing talking to you. I, I love when I have a great interview. And. I mean, this- the pleasure's been all mine. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to hear people, you know, just actually relax, have a conversation, and really, you know, put out there what their interests are and what they have been doing and what they are doing and what they're doing to give back to the world. It's amazing. And um, I have listened to your story from start to finish, and like I said, I take my hat off to you, and I want to thank you so much from, for coming on from execution to excellence. And before you leave here today, I'd like for you to tell our audience where they can find you because there are quite a few places to go. So spell <laughs> it out for them because I'm sure they're going to be interested in watching what you're about to do, what you're doing, and where you're going. Got it. Well, um, the toppublishingcompany.com is where you can find uh, everything publishing that we're, we're into. You'll also find the Noble Court magazine on that website. Uh, you can also go to alexandergarland.com. Uh, it's currently <laughs> getting a facelift, <laughs> and it'll be out by my birthday, which I'm a Libra. Uh, birthday is October 8th. Oh, my. So <laughs> <laughs> hey, Libras, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love it. So um, it'll be out this week. Um, the um, The website will be uh, under, up from under construction. Didn't say that right, but you get it, <laughs> uh, this week. And uh, that will be a hub for all of that. And 
on social media, you'll be able to get me at official AXG. Uh, that's A and then the letter XG, official AXG on Instagram. Uh, it's the top publishing company for our Instagram handle. And um, Luminescent Dolphin, that's L-U-M-I-N-E-S-C-E-N-T, Dolphin. Uh, that's the handle for my production company. Fantastic. It's been amazing talking to you. Can't wait to see what you're going to be doing. Can't wait to get into this Be Done movement. That seemed really exciting. Like I said, I did look at the website, and I am definitely going to check out Top Publishing Company. You just missed me. I have a book coming out next month. I probably will oh. with you guys. <laughs> But I'm excited that it is coming out. But um, who knows, maybe the next book you'll be working with me. Right, right. So and we're not so a champion. I hope you guys enjoyed another episode of From Execution to Excellence with Mr. Alexander Garland. And what about that call of the wild from Lion King, the Broadway hit show, the longest running Broadway hit show? Guys, we appreciate you tuning in to each and every episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we look forward to seeing you again. And also, please do not forget to subscribe and write us a review. Once again, this is your host, Jane Bond, from Execution to Excellence.